Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. You've probably heard of DDoS or Distributed Denial of Service Attacks. They are a common scourge of the modern web, even though that word is not really common or modern and are something you will occasionally see if you work on a popular product. In this episode, we'll discuss what a DDoS is, how they work, and how to mitigate them. But before we get started, Will, what's been scourging you lately? Well, it turns out I still have access to all my training materials for the AWS test that I was preparing for. Back in like September and October before I got downsized. So guess what I'm going to be doing? (laughs) That's super nice that I still have that. Um, And I want to get those in before I don't have that, obviously. So if you're listening and you're the person in charge of that, like be slow because I know who you are. So anyway, (laughs) so how about you? Well, um, as you guys know, I've been, been working on my running and, uh, I don't think I told you all, but I kind of overdid my lifting and was just having some pain in my shoulder. So I, rather than continue to push even with through the pain, when I'm like, this is not the, hey, I'm growing pain. This is a, hey, something's wrong pain. I decided to give it a rest and focus on the running. So I have been just doing more distance the last about two or three weeks. And then this past Friday, I ran five miles straight. And now to those of you who are distance runners, that's like nothing. But for me, about a year ago, a mile was my limit. And so, you know, I've been really pushing it and trying to extend that basically to where I can get where running a 5k is just nothing. So I can start participating in them. And like actually upping my speed, but uh, running five miles, that was pretty cool. I got off the treadmill and I was like, the whole world was just moving slowly after that. And like, I walked, did the full five minute cool down after, but still it was just like, whoa. It was like, I, I was in another world or something. It was so weird. It was kind of cool. It was really fun to actually hit like this major goal there. So nice. Saving money is hard, especially when somebody DDoSes your AWS account. Ooh, good one. <laughs> yeah, because it's gone, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lucas Casadas is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And I literally thought you were about to punch me in the face through the screen there. I don't know what you did, but Will did just some jerking motion with his hand and it just flew toward the screen all of a sudden. I'm like, whoa, what in the world? <laughs> I don't know what I did. It may have just been me like adjusting in my chair. You were, but it just like the way the camera angle, it was just so funny. So, yeah, well, like when they came in here and cleaned today, they fiddled with my chair. And so like the armrests are not quite the right height. They're like 
very close to it. And so it's slightly messing me up. It's like everything in your house being moved over by an inch. You know, or you're like, there's something wrong, but you can't figure out what it is. That's how my desk is right now. I'm going to have to mess with it later. So anyway, back to it. Uh, so just like us at Complete Developer Podcast, Lucas focuses on helping you to not only establish a financial plan and a real financial plan, but to take action on that plan so that you can create and live your best life. Guys, investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances. And with the help of Level Up, the compounding impact of making those better financial decisions over and over will easily pay for itself. Level Up also has a unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. Also, Lucas is a fiduciary for his clients. And what that means is he's not here to sell you anything, but to guide you to a better financial situation. And you can catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics that you probably face, and he interviews other IT professionals who share how they navigated their own careers. And you can learn even more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. A distributed denial of service attack, or DDoS, is an attack where a hostile party attempts to disrupt the normal functionality of a target server, network, or service by overwhelming the target and its related infrastructure. The goal is to disable the service or at least degrade functionality enough to impact the users. And these attacks can occur for any number of reasons. In some cases, an unscrupulous competitor may decide to attack your company to drive your customers to them. Sometimes DDoS attacks are used for hacktivism or as a part of a larger military or political conflict. Sometimes people do it just for fun because there are those types of people out there. Also, in addition to these potential motivations, sometimes DDoS attacks are part of a larger scam. Basically, you're expected to pay to avoid having your servers attacked. Yeah, and that's actually gotten to be increasingly common. I will also say that the military and political conflicts that produce these it's coming, buddy, uh, with everything going on. Actually, we've had a bunch of attempted logins from the Russian Federation today and yesterday on our podcast website, which those seem like they always spike as activity spikes in certain areas. So anyway, now we know that this doesn't sound super duper impressive yet, but let's talk about kind of some of the stats here. In 2019, the average cost of a DDoS attack was around $2.6 million. The average in 2018 was around $1.6 million. If you notice, that went up considerably in a year's time. Uh, we don't have stats for things since 2019, but if you think about everything in the post-COVID world, that's probably not going to be cheaper. The numbers are, in fact, continuing to rise, and the number of DDoS attacks have increased by 22%, hitting financial firms in the year 2022. There are individuals and groups online offering DDoS as a service currently. It's possible to launch a large, damaging, and expensive DDoS attack on a competitor for a fairly low price compared to what it costs them to defend against it. There's no reason to think that this trend is not going to continue to increase. The economics are all there for it to grow. Now, some DDoS attacks can be mind-bogglingly huge in scope. The largest so far 
sent packets of data to 180,000 web servers, each of which sent data to Google. This attack averaged around 2.54 terabytes per second of data to Google. Google managed to mitigate another attack that would have been even larger in June of 2022. That attack peaked at 46 million requests per second and lasted about 30 minutes and was conducted by more than 5,000 devices from 132 different countries. Not only do DDoS attacks represent a substantial risk for website owners, but they can also be used to create a fog of war while other more insidious attacks occur. Yeah, that was one thing that was interesting reading about because in some cases they were seeing things where there were DDoS attacks, but there were also SQL injection attacks happening at the same time. Because what does this do? What crap floods the logs? And any behavior that's going on that's weird, people aren't looking at it because there's this massive attack going on. And they think that it's a symptom of that. So it's, it's nice to hide in that noise, essentially. And that's actually the real attack. So in this episode, we're going to discuss distributed denial of service attacks. Again, DDoS attacks. These attacks use a large number of compromised machines to attack a target with the intent of swamping the target enough to either degrade service or to knock it offline completely. While the intricacies of mitigating a DDoS attack from the ops side is a bit more complex and frankly beyond yours or my ability to uh, really discuss, there are a few things developers do need to know about them. We'll start off discussing some of the characteristics of a DDoS attack, including how they're typically identified. Next, we'll talk about some of the major types of DDoS attacks, and then we'll wrap up by discussing how these attacks can be mitigated. Now, in reality, as developers, you're probably not going to be the one doing the mitigation on most of these things. But what you're going to be doing is getting things together so that someone else can and getting enough proof that, hey, this is a real problem. We've got to handle it now. So the first thing we're going to discuss is the botnet. DDoS attacks are commonly carried out with a network of compromised machines or bots. While the ways in which individual machines can be compromised is beyond the scope of this particular episode, the important thing to note is that it takes a lot of machines to conduct a DDoS attack. Yeah. Um, I'll also point out it may not take as many as you might think. It's a lot, but not... If you're getting 46 million requests per second, you don't have 4.6 million machines doing... 10 requests a second or whatever, you know, you may have a a much smaller number because there's some things that happen when these attacks take place. But once a botnet is established, the attacker will attack by sending instructions to the bots. Each bot then takes actions to access the target site, which is why if you can get to that back channel communication and shut that off, then you've stopped the botnet effectively. Because there are so many computers involved, DDoS attacks are harder to block. It's not like you've got one source coming in. It's also not always trivial to figure out you are under attack versus the site just being really popular. Or you having a, especially if they hit during a normally high traffic time. Or if you get posted on Hacker News or, you know, back in the day, Slashdot was the same kind of thing, right? Well, it kind of works out like a DDoS attack, but it's friendly. They call it the hug of death. Yeah, basically. 
that's the the tricky bit here is because these DDoS attacks, they can look like just heavy traffic. Yeah, that makes a makes it very difficult. So we got to talk about how to identify one. And the first thing you want to look for is odd traffic patterns, such as a lot of traffic from a country that usually doesn't have many clients or at odd times of the day. You know, for instance, a bank website seeing a spike in traffic at 2 a.m. is kind of strange. Again, assuming it's not like New Year's. Or international. Right. That's a pretty common thing that you will see. Yeah. A large spike in traffic from similar users, such as users using the same operating system or from a single IP address or even range of addresses, even similar parts of the world. That sort of stuff will like look for those similarities like, hey, we're getting a bunch of attacks from this region or a bunch of requests from this region, I should say. Yeah, or if you get a sudden spike in people hitting your website with IE11 or IE6 for that matter, especially if you see it with IE6 because people don't want to use that anymore, right? Like you're not going to see an increase in that unless something weird is going on. Another thing that can kind of point towards a DDoS attack is a sharp increase in traffic to a single page or endpoint. It's like some page that is a fraction of a percent of your traffic normally, and all of a sudden one day it's 75% of your traffic. That's a tell right there. That means something is going on that you really need to look into quickly. And then finally, a sudden spike in similar errors for unusual situations can often indicate the start of a DDoS, or it may indicate inauthentic activity from users. Right. So a classic example of this is something where, you know, the URL is too long where you've got some massive form data post or something that keeps coming in on one endpoint. You're like, what is this? You'll see those patterns early on, especially when they are testing the DDoS attack because they got to do something to figure out that it's going to work. So we're going to take a brief interlude here and play some music. No, no, <laughs> There are types of DDoS attacks for several different levels in the OSI model. And we're going to discuss some of the more common ones. The point is that they overload the target with traffic. But how they do that, the mechanisms of action can vary. So we'll start off with application layer attacks. The goal of these attacks is to use so many resources that they overwhelm the target's you know, ability to respond. These can be especially nasty if your system resources use scarce or expensive resources from other vendors who will later bill you. Right, this is a great way to take a company out. You know, you hit them in the wallet until they fall over. And it looks like legitimate traffic. And as far as their vendors are concerned, it is because you are essentially making them use money for every you know, request that comes in. Yeah, and this can be one of the more insidious ways of doing it because it's harder to track that and it's harder to prove that that was an attack. These are very, very difficult to defend against. Like They're almost indistinguishable from a bunch of users using the system at the same time in a similar manner. Yeah, I can remember one with a a company that made a very, very unpopular decision that really ticked off a lot of people. 
and this was years ago. And you know, what a lot of people did is they just went to the company's status page and just refreshed it all the time because somebody figured out that they weren't caching that stuff. And, you know, it's thousands of people. And this was a DDoS attack that was not mechanically started. It was organically started. It was actual human beings hitting refresh because they were mad. And I don't want to say what the vendor was and what the situation was. But, you know, in that particular case, I kind of agreed with the mob. They did enough. But that's the thing, right? That looks like authentic action. It's just a sudden spike. So a good example of an application layer attack is an HTTP flood, which is very similar to that whole category of, you know, hitting refresh in the browser on a bunch of different machines. It's just automated here. The target machine or the machines on which it depends, aka the database server, just get overwhelmed with requests and they fall over. Uh, and this used to be a bigger thing before cloud servers and you know, you know, things like Cloudflare and all that kind of stuff where you had mitigation strategies for this stuff. So like, you know, this was back in the days of you got Rackspace accounts and you had servers that you owned and you had your own database server and all that kind of stuff. Well, if they hit that infrastructure, you couldn't scale up quick enough because it was months and it was a provisioning process. So you were just toast. The next set of attacks are protocol attacks. And these are somewhat similar to application layer attacks, but their goal is to overwhelm other resources that the app relies on, such as firewalls, load balances, and routing engines. Yeah, I meant to say load balancers. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I just oh, read well. what was written. Yeah, so... Um, now, these can be really interesting to defend against because, frankly, a lot of times you don't have control over that part of the system. That's your your vendor. And you probably don't touch it that much. So the people that are familiar with it may not be there when the thing gets hit. You're often at the mercy of vendors and cloud providers in this situation. And boy, they love it when you're at their mercy too. Let me tell you. Now, a good example of this is a SYN, S-Y-N flood attack. These attacks exploit the TCP handshake, essentially by sending connection requests. When the server responds with an ACK, A-C-K, the sender never responds, and that ties up the resource on the device. Yeah, so essentially, a lot of these attacks, you're going to see this. It's an exploitation of the fact that I can take a small action it requires the server to take a big action. I send you 10 bytes and you have to send me a megabyte. Well, if I can do that from a thousand different machines, I'm not really spending much. It definitely is a, a big problem. And speaking of big problems, the next type of attack that can happen is called a volumetric attack. And volumetric attacks differ from the previous two in that their goal is to attack the bandwidth of the service directly such that all bandwidth between it and the internet is consumed. So in this case, you're not hitting database servers or you're not hitting processing. You're hitting networking, mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah. If, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. This can be done by having all computers in a botnet attempt to access the same page. However, it's also possible to form amplification attacks using other services. Yeah, so a great example of that is a DNS amplification attack. Basically, 
you use a public DNS server to flood a target with traffic to which the server is supposed to respond. Typically, that you send a request for a large amount of DNS zone information, preferably all of it, mm-hmm. you know, a whole bunch of times from a whole bunch of different locations. Well, you're sending a tiny packet and getting a bunch of stuff back. And so you can saturate the pipe, essentially, with that. Yeah, the main takeaway here is that a small request generates a large response, which allows the attacker to overwhelm the target's bandwidth while not really doing much to theirs. Right. And that also includes any hacked machines that they're using, right? One thing that if you have a botnet, just from reading interviews with people, I don't have a botnet yet. Emphasis on the yet. <laughs> hey, you know, you know, you just got to, you got to you know, clarify things. I might be an evil warlord someday. I just, you know, I need more money for that. Too lazy for that. Yeah. It really seems like a lot of work. You got to grow a mustache. It's just, it's a problem. But if you have a botnet, you've got a whole bunch of machines that you have compromised and you're using them to attack other people's stuff. Well, okay. The other people, you want them to know they're under attack, but you don't want the people who you are using to attack to know that they are attacking because they're going to take steps to mitigate it and you're going to lose your botnet, right? This is an asset that these people get. You know, they hack into machines and they get, you know, 10,000 machines. It's like, okay, I've got these. And now it's kind of a, a rent-a-mob, essentially, for the internet. You know, I want to use them over and over again, so I'm not going to burn them. And so that's why these type of attacks are really important, economically speaking, for botnets to work, is because you don't want to get caught. Of course, you could also, you know, run a botnet on you know, cheap hosting, you know, like you breach... WordPress sites that are crappy anyway, and people won't notice it because everything else sucks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's why they try to break into ours. I would say you you could just sell purses from two guys with neckbeards. Yeah, I don't think either one of us have a neckbeard anymore. But back then, we both had long hair and long beards. Yeah, and then it all turned gray. <laughs> You're like, okay, let's. Uh, I can't get a job as a wizard, you know, <laughs> so. Well, I mean, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so we, we were talking about, you know, how they have to hide because obviously the botnet ease, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want them to catch you, but you know, the people that are the target also have to mitigate it. So let's talk about some of the mitigation strategies. And the first one is the worst one. And this is what will happen to you if you don't do something yourself. And that is a you know, mitigation by black hole. You know, again, least optimal response, but essentially, if you fail to stop it, this is what other services that are upstream of you are going to have to do to deal with it because they got to do something. Mm-hmm. Essentially, what this does is to route all incoming traffic into a black hole where it never returns. Service providers will do this to protect their own systems, but it accomplishes the attacker's goal of knocking your system offline. Yeah. Now you can also, to some degree, restrict the black holing of incoming traffic to certain characteristics, because if it's largely from a single country, you know, you might be able to get by with just blocking all the traffic from there, assuming they're not using a VPN and able to bring it up somewhere else. You might be able to, with some of the HTTP, verbs and headers and oh just you know where they're coming in on so a common thing i do with our site 
for instance, because it's WordPress and WordPress is the devil. Actually, no, it's not that competent. One thing that they try to do a lot is they will try to break in through the login, right? And so when we get a high volume of attacks, I actually, on some occasions, just go in and edit the Apache config so that you can't get to the login. And then they go away and they try to hit a different site, right? Because we're not really, they need a target, not us as a target, right? This is the attacks that we typically see are things that are trying to break into the system so that they can use the system to attack something bigger. We're not worth attacking in, in that other manner. You know, we're, we're not the, the final boss. Yeah. We're the stepping stone. Yeah, exactly. We're the flunky. Yeah. We're bebop and rock steady. We're not shredder. Exactly. Or shredder, not crank. I'm not sure. I say we're bebop and rock steady. They got the cool names. Yeah. There you go. You be Bebop, I'll be Rocksteady. I don't remember which was which, but you know. Yeah, I don't either. They're <laughs> both ugly. <laughs> That's <It> fair. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the next mitigation strategy is rate limiting. Now, another option for some of these attacks is to simply limit the number of requests that are allowed within a particular time window. Now, this is not a complete solution. However, it won't really handle a more complex DDoS scenario. Yeah, but it hits the low-hanging fruit. One thing you got to understand with a lot of this stuff is you've got a lot of people who are in desperate situations in different parts of the world who are setting these botnets up. And when they are green at it and they're not very good at it, the dumb attacks, that's them doing it. So if you can mitigate those you're making it where at least the people that are trying to screw you over are smarter, (laughs) which maybe is not optimal either, but at least it's, you know, you're not falling for simple stuff. So rate limiting can stop a lot of things like web scrapers that are either misused or used properly. uh, Cause sometimes they can mimic a DDoS attack as well, depending on how they work. And it's, you know, it's not intentional. It's just, Hey, somebody's doing behavior on your site that hits it. It can also stop things like brute force login attempts, brute force use of API endpoints, those kind of things. And it's also really, really useful for stopping accidental situations. So somebody has an integration that has a bad for loop in it and it just goes nuts. Well, this is why you have dev systems and you do have those rate limited is so that that developer knows before they push it to production. Yeah. And so a lot of these systems are kind of useful for the general development process anyway. Like you should be rate limiting most APIs that are publicly exposed. Uh, Yeah, I agree with that. Basically, the thing is, is like, if you disagree with that, you have to have enough money to convince me that you're right. Because you're going to have to have enough money to be right. Well, I mean, I I was thinking about it like rate limiting is the first kind of line of defense but it's not the whole thing like if you only have rate limiting it's like taking your antibiotic until you feel better you've basically killed off the weak bacteria and so all you've got left are the strong ones yeah well plus it's just kind of common sense so it's like rate limiting is the security equivalent of not licking doorknobs (laughs) right like yes it's a good idea not to lick doorknobs but that cannot be your complete health picture. Right. 
Right. If it was your complete health picture, I would assume that 17% of bankruptcies wouldn't come from medical problems. <laughs> yeah. Oh, rate limiting does make it harder to conduct DDoS attacks with only a few attacking machines. But again, these approaches can often meet the attacker's goal by making your system unavailable for users. Right. Especially if it's a really asymmetric setup that you got. Yeah. You're doing, you know, one thing I've seen is like really big reports that are not properly cached and they're publicly available. If they can hit a system like that, it doesn't take that many machines to grind the system down. Yeah. Especially if your reporting infrastructure is your production transactional database, people can make you have a very bad time with very, very, very few machines. And so it's, it's important to kind of know this and, and the rate limiting will help. But again, you also have to look at it and go, okay, if I rate limit enough, I am denying access to people who have legitimate use of the system. It's a balance. Yeah. Because I mean, you'd be, a t- you'd be accomplishing what the hacker wants to do in the first place. And now it's your corporate policy. If they want to punch you in the face and you punch yourself in the face, that's not a win. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it's like you want to stay in this this zone of you go too high and you limit your customers. You go too low and you open yourself up for attack. So there's like a little Goldilocks zone, so to speak. And it moves. Yeah. Like, so if you know your company has done something that people massively dislike, that zone just changed shape. And so you may have to rate limit much more effectively. You may also want to cash more because that can get you out of a lot of trouble if you can, if you have a good caching layer. So the last one is probably the recommended strategy. And again, all these things are part of defense in depth. None of them is sufficient by itself. And that is the web application firewall. A web application firewall, or we're going to call it a WAF, because I don't want to say that out over and over again. It acts kind of like a reverse proxy, but it can use a rules-based approach to determining whether a given request is part of an attack or not. If it is, then that request will be rejected, right? So like, you know, let's say, I don't know, let's say, let's pick on Kazakhstan. You're getting a ton of attacks out of Astana, Kazakhstan, right? And you're seeing, hey, there's a huge spike of this. I don't know what's going on. I can put a a rule in the web application firewall for a short period of time. This is just block all those. I was going to say, describe a reverse proxy. Um, Okay, so I've been fiddling with the config of mine today. A great example of this is Nginx. It's kind of like a facade over web processes. So for instance, I can have a website or a web service, you know, something that is, is running, you know, an express server or, or whatever. But instead of publicly exposing that, I have it listening on a particular port inside my network. And then I have another server in front of it. And so when that server gets a request in, it can look at it and say, okay, this request goes to this endpoint and basically pass it in a pipe onto that port. So it's never publicly exposed. It can also look at it and say, okay, the crap that it's posting has got, you know, request forgery vulnerability going on here, or there's raw H, you know, HTML in here. We don't allow that period across the board for whatever reason, because our site doesn't allow that kind of content to come in. 
And so you can block it there instead of it ever getting to the web process. And so it can catch a lot of you know, common attacks. Some of them can also do things as far as dealing with things like load balancing. You'll also see them do things like handling certificates. So your certificate actually hits that endpoint and it gets decrypted. You know, the traffic gets decrypted and it's sent probably to something on the same box, hopefully not over a wired connection or anything that is decrypted traffic. And that way your actual web code doesn't have to be aware of that. So you can do a lot of different stuff with it, but it's a proxy against what's coming in, not against what's going out. That's why they call it a reverse, a reverse proxy. I know there's going to be some network guy that's going to be like, hey, that's not the best explanation, but I was not anticipating having to give an explanation because I didn't think about that when I was writing the outline. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So when I, when I read the outline, I saw reverse proxy and I'm like, hmm, I'm going to have him give a good explanation for that because I can see people going, I'm going to have to look that up. And when they're driving in the car, I don't want them picking up their phones, looking it up. Yeah, that's fair. And if you do have a better definition, just understand that when you send it to me, I'll appreciate it. But I'm also going to ask you how to get Nginx Proxy Manager to let me stand up a static site without having an additional Nginx Proxy wrapped around the site. Because that's not cool. And that's what I was told I have to do today. Right. So if you email it to uh, to Neckbeards at Complete Developer Podcast, we'll, we'll give you a shout out on the show. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, yeah. So there you go. And uh, yeah, that's that. So now back to our web application firewalls or WAFs. Such a weird acronym. Yeah, it sounds like slanderous. Yeah. Mildly slanderous. Yeah, it just, it just, it sounds icky. Yeah, it, it, well, it's, it makes me think that like, the, you know, this, this person thinks mayonnaise is spicy or something. Like, it's just like a, it's a slander term for that. I don't know. This is something where it's, it's not real bad, but you're like, okay, whatever, bro. Yeah, it just it, it just sounds weird. Anyway, so this often includes custom rules. So a web application firewall can be very useful in dealing with an ongoing attack. If you notice a pattern in the attack, you can add that custom rule like Will was talking about to filter those incoming requests that match that pattern. Web application firewalls also tend to come with pre-canned rules for mitigating certain types of issues. So things like cross-site scripting vulnerabilities, cross-site request forgery, file inclusion stuff. You'll see those a lot of times with WordPress environments. SQL injection is another big one. These vulnerabilities can often be involved in the process of your machine becoming a member of a botnet as well, right? So it's not just for DDoS attacks. It's Gets, you know, gets a lot of other stuff blocked out. So guys, while DDoS attacks are not something developers deal with every day, it's important to understand them because you're likely to be in the room when your organization discovers that it is under attack. Because these attacks can often look a lot like standard web traffic at a larger scale, it can be a little bit tricky to diagnose them and it can be even more tricky to mitigate them. In practical terms, most web developers won't have to do much to mitigate DDoS attacks. Instead, we're often called to identify them and maybe get a little bit of information so that the ops people can jump in and do it, right? Because we typically aren't messing with the web application firewalls, for instance. And, you know, honestly, once you discover you're under attack, you need to be forwarding things to operations, to networking, DevOps personnel, those kind of things, potentially legal authorities, depending on what's going on. 
But it is still important to understand the characteristics of these attacks because they are fairly common and they're getting worse. And that pretty much wraps us up. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash completedeveloperpodcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.